0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is
1: Emily-Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions.
0: So Emily, how was your week? Well, I've been on
1: holiday for two weeks, so... I think as weeks go, I've had a couple of reasonable weeks. Um, I had five consecutive days without a headache, which is uh, maybe the first five days since last March. I have been taking melatonin to help me sleep for almost three weeks now. And I don't know if that's something that's just tipped the balance. Even with that and the amitriptyline, the H2 blockers, still sometimes I can't sleep. Like I think you should be sleeping by the time you've taken all of that. (laughs) but I think having eight hours, nine hours of trying to get rest, whether or not I'm sleeping during that period has been really helpful. I've even managed to go for a few runs and yeah. But then when I traveled back, I was completely knocked out by the journey. Literally couldn't do anything yesterday.
0: Well, that's good really that you managed to get some runs in like that. Having speaking almost two or three times a week for the last few months, I haven't heard of that type of improvement. No. So just stepping back and looking at it from the outside, that's huge.
1: Yeah. And I did it really, really, really carefully and really short runs, but I haven't felt the ill effects that I did last time I went for a run. So.
0: That's massive. I hope this is a turning point and, you know, you can just slowly build it up. Now the key is now not to get any kind of extra viruses, I think. (laughs)
1: That's yeah, not, so now I'm going back to just not leaving the house again. <laughs> <laughs> and Noreen, how was your week?
0: We, it was awful. We lost a very close member of the family and we had I had to travel to the US. In terms of stress, it's been fairly stressful. And what happens to your
1: symptoms with the stress? Do you feel that it correlated, that they're directly
0: tied? I don't have that constant heart feeling poorly Um, but I think I'm in that phase of not feeling my heart kind of taking a rest from giving me shit this week but I'll be you know I can be sitting around just talking and I can be feeling my heart kind of do those flips which are really uncomfortable but they're less frequent at the moment I think the stress is coming out in the fact that you know I'm kind of absolutely shattered and can't keep my eyes open by nine o'clock at night, like absolutely shattered. I think that's taken a toll on me. But um, on the whole, I'd say that, you know, it's really hot out here and the heat agrees with me. And so I've been able to do a few little walks. Yeah, there not were not much more than that. I am not. Fe- I haven't been feeling great for a few weeks now.
1: Are you feeling any, any better than you were in London with the
0: your heart rate was going crazy just from doing the washing up? it's that slightly improved this week yeah that's slightly improved but again like it's cyclical isn't it so I go through those weeks where I know I'm my heart's going to give me trouble just because I wake up in the morning and I feel like I can feel my eyes burning and I just know it's one of those days and that's week on week different so this week my heart rate hasn't been going crazy but I still go up and down the stairs and it's going to like 120 which is not great it should be like at 80 or 90 according to the Cardiologist. but that's better than 140 150 which it was last week so a slight improvement
1: well maybe we're both slightly edging towards feeling better
0: that's very optimistic I'm less optimistic than you (laughs) we should talk about this week's guest it was a great fascinating interview with Dr Melissa Heitman
1: yeah who's a respiratory consultant and clinical lead for the long COVID
0: clinic at UCLH in London. That long COVID clinic at UCLH is meant to be the gold standard of all COVID clinics.
1: Yeah, and it was the first to even sort of start, start working
0: on it, wasn't it? It's a great interview and really kind of spells out what these clinics do, how they treat people, what the treatments are and what the difficulties are. Are you just shocked at the amount of people that are going to be coming through these doors?
2: I've been shocked for quite a few months now. (laughs) I think my shock started in May 2020 and it's not gone away. We've been seeing patients in person since the 11th of May last year. And uh, we knew from the first day of our clinic, which was actually we had to be in, we were in a van outside the hospital because we couldn't get into outpatients. It was shut. We knew from the first patients we saw, many of them were NHS colleagues, um, that something very odd was going on that we hadn't seen before as respiratory physicians. I think some other areas have seen similar scenarios, you know, our chronic fatigue colleagues, um, for example, although they themselves don't feel long COVID is exactly the same as chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, there are differences. Yeah. So being short for a long time.
1: Yeah. You are a respiratory physician. Um, the, acute phase of covid is classified still as a respiratory disease the condition of long covid do you think it is always that it stems from an initial respiratory issue in the acute phase or do you think that it it really can have affected any system of the body
2: I think more the latter, because we see it occur in patients who actually didn't have any respiratory symptoms as part of their initial illness. So it's behaving more as though it was um, either an immune driven reaction to the virus, which could obviously have consequences in, in every organ, or perhaps in some organs, some other end organ effects of the viral inflammation, for example, the myocarditis. So I think it's a combination of what we call end organ effects directly um, re- caused by the virus and then our own body's immune responses that only occur in some people, you know, that, that, that immune um, re- reaction to the virus obviously only occurs in, in some people because the vast majority of people recover completely without any long-term sequelae.
0: Now you has an amazing uh, reputation at the moment amongst the, Long haul of post-COVID syndrome sufferers, long COVID people in the country. It's got one of the best
2: reputations. Can you tell us about what the services at UCLH include? So we've evolved from being a hospital-based service in recent months to a network with primary care and community care. So I would say we've kind of extended beyond the hospital boundaries, but um so what we've developed locally is actually a process for GPs to do a thorough assessment of a patient with long COVID symptoms, um, and then that generates an automatic referral into the system that gets triaged uh, by clinicians, and that could be a doctor or a therapist, to decide where is the best place for that patient to be assessed and looked after. Some patients will be seen in the community-based clinic first, and then uh, that's overseen by us through through support, through what we call MDT meetings, so we have regular meetings. Um, And then other patients with severe symptoms come through to the UCLH service. And the experience of coming to our clinic, you'll be seen by a a doctor um, and a physiotherapist, both of whom have expertise in post COVID syndrome because it's obviously a new clinical condition and we've been learning as, as doctors and therapists ourselves. The assessment takes about an hour. Um, and, it, you know, there's a lot of things to cover because long COVID, post-COVID syndrome can affect many different systems of the body. And we'll work out which are the useful tests to have done. And usually uh, a patient will have some sort of exercise test and blood tests done on the day. Um, other tests might need another appointment. Um, and then usually we'll have an, another meeting with the patient to tie up all the findings and try and work out. Uh, an approach to treatment and, and recovery using a therapy. Um, and that that's often delivered actually by our community partners. So we're really working as this kind of joined up network at the moment. Who is
1: involved in your multi-specialist approach? What are yeah. all of the various factions?
2: So from the early days, uh, we, we realised we were speaking to cardiology a lot. So I would say that respiratory and cardiology... Are at the heart of it, and then we started talking to neurology an awful lot because of the large number of patients with autonomic symptoms, with um, effects on their cognition, and some patients who have numbness and tingling. So, the, the key parts of our multi specialty MDT are respiratory, cardiology, neurology, as well as the therapists and psychology. And then we have regular visits from dermatology, rheumatology, immunology infectious diseases um and have I forgotten anybody there gastroenterology
1: have you left any hospital departments out
2: <laughs> there <laughs> <laughs> if I have I'm going to go and find them I didn't mention EMT um, so I'm even bothering the surgeons now Yes. Uh, yeah so we've we've been gifted a, a new multi-system disease and uh, I would say that multi-morbidity is something the nhs always struggles to deal with because in some ways we lost our general medical expertise within the health service so i'm trained as a respiratory physician and i'm also accredited in general internal medicine so um, a lot of the conditions i look after are multi-system and i'm comfortable with that but that's not the case and for many specialists they're they're very focused on their organ and that makes it difficult for a condition like this, which in every patient has a different impact on different organs. So finding the right service for them to be looked after in is challenging. And that's why we've gone down the route of developing a new service.
1: I just wish everyone could access that, that new service. And when you talk about those community partners, is it still specifically within your postcodes of coverage? Is it a specific area that you are covering?
2: Yeah, so we used to accept referrals nationwide, but now clinics have been commissioned by the NHS in in every area of England. At least, um, we have to restrict uh, referrals to those from our our partner boroughs. So that's those are the boroughs in North Central London. Um, and I think last September,
1: you yours was described as the only true long COVID clinic.
0: Hmm.
1: Has your multi professional approach being scaled out to those other clinics that you mentioned or is each clinic uh, designing its own services?
2: So I think we have a kind of a roadmap agreed that each service is supposed to be working towards. Um, The principles of that are that it must be a multidisciplinary team offer, Uh, there must be capacity for patients to be seen in person uh, it has to include uh, access to tests and to exercise testing. Um, so those kind of things are part of what we call the commissioning guidance that we're, we're all the clinics should be working towards. I think what different areas are doing differently is um, what happens to the patient after their initial assessment. So For example, in our service, we've gone with what we call a multi-specialty model where um, we assess and define the need of patients. And then we discuss that with the other specialists that need to get involved in the meeting to try and develop one plan for that person. (coughs) Whereas in other services, they may not have access to that multi-specialty input and they may send them off to separate clinics. Um, So that depends a little bit on the resource you have and the structures you have locally. And I think the other things that vary quite a lot is the degree of post-COVID expertise because it's a new condition um, and you have to learn about it as a clinician yourself. And we're still, although there's things published every day, there's still so much that we have to learn about this condition. And therefore, to some extent, experience of it is extremely important um, as a doctor for pattern recognition, for knowing whether this is someone who's really poorly or whether this is a mild version, um, and also some experience of how to treat it because, Uh, We have been using treatment approaches that we've borrowed from other conditions, from experience in other conditions. And there is is not a roadmap for how to treat post-COVID syndrome per se. So it's challenging clinically. And I think that many services are really struggling to uh, release the workforce that's needed to make the service run well. Uh, And we're struggling with that locally as well. We're really very short of particularly physio and occupational therapist time within the community services. And is that
1: because there's such a a greater need on those services than there ever previously was? Or is it because of the medical services catching up on all those things that were missed during the kind of crisis phase of the pandemic?
2: I think um, there's always been a shortage of um, that workforce and in a sense, I think Many people who look after people with long term conditions have felt that we've long needed to expand our rehabilitation services for long term conditions. So we started off with a shortage. Those people got redeployed into the acute activity during the pandemic because they're extremely useful um, for looking after the poorly people in hospital as well. And then they've had their own backlogs of their usual work, plus a a large number of new patients to care for. and it takes a long time to train a physio and an OT and for them to gather the experience to do this kind of work. Do you think the clinics are being adequately funded? I think um, they are adequately funded at the moment. And actually, it's not the funding that's holding us back. It's the, it's the workforce that is the main problem. And, and really, pressure's right through the system, primary care, hospitals, um rehabilitation. We really need to innovate in the long COVID pathway to be able to cope with the demands Um, and probably the the two best opportunities are sort of use of digital tools for those patients who are able to use them um, because they can encourage patients to help manage their own condition with the best quality information we have available um, and also allow therapists to manage um, a larger number of patients with less of their time. And what are those digital tools? Yeah, so they're a combination of like online resources, um, but also then more sophisticated apps, which have been developed specifically for long COVID. There's an NHSE approved one called Your COVID Recovery, um, and they have an online resource of information, but also a kind of an app type function, which is more bespoke to a person where they get guided through a, a, a rehab plan. And then there's another app which is produced by UCL and a company called Living With um, called COVID Recovery. They've all got very similar names. And um, that's, again, a kind of um, offering a patient a bespoke approach to help them manage their fatigue and other symptoms. These tools, I think, could be really useful adjuncts, but they haven't been evaluated yet, so we don't know if they work. um, Right.
1: And are they available universally across the UK are they um, funded by the NHS or, or is it a something you have to pay for
2: so you know you don't pay for the app as a patient but you need to have access to a service that can oversee you using it so you get onboarded by a therapy team so that is not available across the country
0: just from a personal viewpoint I don't unless you've had really bad COVID you were really poorly, and you were in hospital, and, you, you know, your lungs were pretty bad, and you had quite an acute experience of COVID, I, I can see how physiotherapy would really help those people to recover some of the, the, what they have lost when they were sick. But for me, my experience of post-COVID is that I have cardiac symptoms mm-hmm. uh, and facial flushing. So I don't understand how physio would help me.
2: No. Um, and that's quite right. So we use physio in a loose term. Um, In terms of the treatments for long COVID, at the moment, we tailor them according to the symptoms that the patient has. Now, the most common symptoms are fatigue and breathlessness. Um, I mean, if we talk about the fatigue, obviously, we do have expertise in many conditions of helping patients manage fatigue. And an approach to pacing your activity versus not deconditioning is something that therapists can help with. But it it also comes very much down to an individual learning about their own body and what what they do that makes them feel less well and and where to set their appropriate limits, but also not to stop doing anything, which would make them very deconditioned. So we've we've got approaches to fatigue. It's very challenging, but there are approaches... Breathlessness is really interesting in long COVID because patients may experience breathlessness without having any uh, obvious measurable abnormality in their lungs. So, with the scans looking normal or even their lung function tests being relatively normal. And that's something we haven't really seen in other conditions, and we're trying to understand what we call the physiology behind that, the the mechanisms behind it. But we do have therapy approaches to help patients with an experience of breathlessness. So you might have heard about uh, the ENO Breathe Programme, for example, or um, respiratory physios are very expert at that. Now, your symptoms of chest pain, um, again, very common as part of long COVID, something that we're still trying to understand. And obviously, chest pain has many Uh, causes in normal medical practice ranging from acid reflux to heart inflammation so first of all you've got to diagnose well is there an obvious cause for the chest pain because the treatments are completely dependent on the cause and sometimes it will be more musculoskeletal and relating to for example the joints of the chest wall we talk about costochondritis we do see myocarditis as part of long covid which is very difficult to diagnose with usual tests Um, And really only well seen on a cardiac MRI scan. And there's not very good access to those um, across the UK. And it's also very difficult sometimes as the doctor to to get the balance right between not over investigating your patient in a way that might be unhelpful and worsen their stress about their condition versus not missing important diagnoses. And I think that's a, a lot of learning that we've got to do with long covid um, but you're right. So for chest pain, therapy isn't really the answer. It's about getting the understanding the cause of it and, and trying to treat the cause. Hot flushes is a really interesting one and there's a lot of interest in, in whether long COVID in some way might be influencing a perimenopause process. Um and there's some potential mechanisms by which that might be happening. But you know, we're we're still learning about that very much ourselves. And so we you know, we we'd want to To understand those responses in you and and, um, activity trackers and things can be really useful for trying to get a sense of what's going on there.
1: Everyone with an Apple Watch has really been able to track their long COVID symptoms in a way that five years ago we wouldn't be doing
0: this. It's quite stressful wearing one because I sometimes just chuck it away because I'm like, I can't keep
2: looking at my watch. No, that's right. I do find them helpful to look at in clinic to sort of look back over a week and just understand what's been going on. Um, and it's one area where sometimes we'll try some medication to improve the heart rate control. Um, so after we've used all the lifestyle measures, made sure you're properly hydrated, good salt intake, et cetera. So yeah, it's, um, there's so many, um, dimensions to be assessed in every patient. You know, I think that's, what's also quite challenging for the NHS, it's
0: so intensive to look after just one patient because there's so much involved, like it takes a lot of investigation, I'm assuming.
2: Well, it it, it could do, and what we rapidly need to learn is what are the right tests, because we've done a, a lot of tests which actually haven't been very useful. And that's one thing we have to not do in the NHS. We have to use resource really wisely. So Learning, for example, we've learned that it's not very useful to do a CT scan of a patient's lungs if they never had any severe respiratory part to their initial illness. And their breathlessness is not going to be reflected by lung inflammation. It's another mechanism. So, um, but until you do these tests, you don't know that.
1: So what are the first tests that you now look to do with the majority of patients? Are there any specific blood tests that you do um, in the majority of cases?
2: Yeah, well, you've got to get the basics right and examine, uh, sort of investigate things according to sort of basic medical approaches because it's very important that you confirm the diagnosis is right and that actually this isn't a situation that's been mislabeled as uh, post-COVID syndrome or long COVID. So we there are investigations we ask a GP to do before referral. So if the patient's breathless, they must have a chest X-ray. If they've got chest pain, they must have an ECG. And then we have a panel of blood tests, which looks at um, the blood count, the liver, the kidneys, and some markers of inflammation, um, markers of heart inflammation, uh, markers of blood clotting. Um, And then we'll decide additional tests depending on what the patient's symptoms are. And then we've kind of worked out what we call an algorithm for how we investigate each symptom. The next stage investigations are the things that we don't have certainty on about what the right approach is. It would be very appealing to do a cardiac MRI on every patient with chest pain. There's no way we could cope with that in terms of the uh, MRI capacity we have. Um, but you, So therefore, you've got to select your patient carefully for which one actually you do need to get that test in. We find exercise tests very helpful. Um, so we use the six-minute walk test because it captures a number of different parameters, like the heart rate response, the breathlessness response, blood pressure responses. Um, and then we're looking at wearables, um, so Fitbits, Apple Watches. They can give us additional information. Um, sometimes you know, a patient will need testing of their nervous system, so they might need scans of their brain or of their autonomic function, which is the involuntary nervous system controlling your heart rate and blood pressure. I think we've got a lot better at pattern recognition now, so we know when something fits our expected patterns and, or, or when it's a very severe version or there's something funny going on. Um, so really that's, there's a lot of clinical judgment uh, involved in how you manage a patient and that's what comes with seeing a quantity of patients. So it's quite difficult for a GP who might only see a couple of patients with long COVID compared to myself and my colleagues where uh, we have 100 appointments a week of patients with long COVID.
0: I think it's quite important, though, to get the word out to the, to the GPs around the country that a lot of the blood tests will come back normal. Yeah, sure. And then,
2: you know, it's, all, it's up to them how they refer on. And it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong. Yeah. They're very useful for excluding other causes of these symptoms. So there's still a value.
1: But something we're hearing time and time again, people being sent away.
2: Yes. And I think that's not because people don't want to offer care, but they're not quite able to identify where could they access care that would make a difference to that individual. That's what's challenging at the moment. At the end of the day, the treatment approaches we have available, are a bit frustrating. You know, we want more. We want something
1: more effective. Even from someone like you, who has the sort of the gold standard of long COVID clinics, you're finding your treatment approaches frustrating. What what are you what are you saying that has been working? Um, I yeah. think you've done some trials, haven't you?
2: Yeah. So we've um, if we think about the therapy approaches, I think the interventions to help those feelings of breathlessness do work. I think the Eno program is brilliant, and the respiratory physio input can be brilliant. I think helping a patient manage their fatigue more effectively really helps because a lot of patients were you know, ironically, making themselves worse because they were just trying to do the wrong thing, they were taking the wrong approach. But those things are very much about adjusting to the condition so that you don't make it worse. They're not about getting to grips with the underlying cause and treating it and curing it. So that's obviously what we're always after in medicine is we want to cure people. It rarely happens. As a respiratory doctor, I cure very few people unless they have asthma and then inhalers are really rather good. But So the breathlessness management, fatigue management really helps. There are other treatments that we are trying just through clinical judgment or using them off license, which sometimes seem to help. And those are the ones that we'd really like to evaluate in a proper trial. Um so you all have seen the series about mast cell activation and uh, antihistamine yeah, use. Yeah, we're
1: we're both um we're both on those on antihistamines. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean and I have had patients where particularly addition of the H2 blocker famotidine mm-hmm. made a big difference to their brain fog.
0: Yeah. Um, Look, it when I have my famotidine in the evening, my heart is perfectly normal. That's weird, isn't it? It's so bizarre because I just wait until 6.30 when I can. I have my thermotidine, because that's going to, my evenings are then brilliant. How Mm -hmm. long does that
2: last for, that improvement? Is it just a few hours?
0: No, no, no. Until about 11 o'clock the next morning. I start to about midday, I start to fade.
2: Yeah. So, um, and we've really been listening to anything that a patient group or an individual tell us about things they found useful and we've now got some NIHR funding to do a trial of, of some of these treatments um, in a more structured way. We're also going to be evaluating the digital apps to see if they're helpful um, and look at some of the diagnostic approaches in long COVID and see what seems to be most useful. So those kind of trials have of, of actually what's going on on the ground and what we need. And so far, we've had a lot of epidemiology, haven't we, and a lot of symptom surveys and things. But to be honest, as a long COVID doctor, I've known what they were telling me six months ago. And what we need now is to know which of these treatments actually seem to work and who do they work in? Because no one patient with long COVID is the same.
1: Yeah, so it depends on what is triggering your symptoms. I mean, we both have a history of allergy So I think that that is obviously one of the reasons that we've been put on antihistamine treatment.
2: But they may be helpful in people who don't have allergy.
1: Yeah, uh, there has been suggestion, hasn't there, that, that it's helped other symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily put down as being somehow allergic. And I have a really quite severe allergic or sort of reactions to things, a lot of food things. I don't have that same thing that Noreen has when I take my mud that my symptoms subside I don't actually feel f- feel any immediate effect but I've just been taking it consistently and I think possibly things are easing over time certain things but it's not a, a sort of instant fix I don't I don't feel any immediate effect on my body
2: and I think even in people feel effects we're, we're talking about small improvements you know like sort 10 15 percent but if we can find a number of treatments that give multiple small improvements that that could help people feel a lot better but you're right why does why does noreen feel better and you don't these are the questions we'll have to answer
1: and it must be to do with what what triggers it are there any other drug therapies that you have had? consistent results with, or have those mainly been just treating symptoms rather than a sort of overriding system?
2: That's what we're struggling with, because we have been using specific medication for specific symptoms. And then sometimes a the patient will tell us actually that it seems to have led to wider benefits. So for example, we've used colchicine for patients who have myocarditis um, and heart pain, uh, chest pain. Um, and they they have sometimes told us that they saw some other improvements in their energy levels and it's so anecdotal, almost to the point of not being helpful. But that would be another medicine we'd be interested in in learning more about what its role was. There's lots of unanswered questions about the role of anticoagulation. So you might have seen that in post-hospital patients they're looking at the role of that as a tablet. And we're also very interested in that because we do see some markers of abnormal clotting tendency in some people. Um, but but only in 10% of people and that's what's really hard in long COVID you think you've defined a, an abnormality but then you only find you see it in 10% of people each each thing I know about I only see it now and then statistically
0: though we're looking at women
2: right being more affected by long more color, but obviously more 40% of our patients are men so we can't forget about them no
0: <laughs> yeah it's interesting it's just this idea that a lot of long COVID patients have fluctuations in their symptoms. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For women, like we put some of us, like for me, it follows a definite monthly pattern. Yeah. And um, again, that could poss- possibly lead to some kind of treatments.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting area. And it's a conversation we've only really been progressing in the last few weeks. But we also see many people have varying symptoms with their menstrual cycle, often feeling worse just before their. Period, Um, and that's where this question about has COVID in any way had an influence on the natural perimenopause process? Because obviously, the women that we see are in our cohort; their median age is forty-eight. So, and I think that's replicated in the sort of national um, studies as well. It's something that we need to look at more, and and also just to consider: is there any role for HRT? Um, in, in addressing symptoms because there is some interest within the menopause um, medical community in that, and they report that they have seen some improvement in long COVID symptoms with use of HRT. Obviously, HRT is a little bit controversial, isn't it, as an approach. Again, something to try and evaluate in a trial, but it's it's ever so difficult to separate long COVID and perimenopause um, symptoms. Um, and this is something I've been speaking to a lady um called Louise Newson about recently, um, who seems to have a lot of wisdom on this subject.
0: She's got a great app, the balance app. Yeah, it's great that, isn't it? Yeah. So my my own physician has broached it with me, HRT. And he's also said, just go and do this app and see and come back to us in a month or two. Yeah. And see what your results are, and then we'll discuss it more, no.
1: Yeah, I think we should we should definitely um, Try and speak to some people about the impact on the menstrual cycle.
0: It's crazy. I mean, I can't imagine being a doctor trying to to deal with all of all of us, because for example, my cardiac symptoms get worse a week after my period, not right before. So we're all so different. It's like it must be an absolute nightmare trying to
2: puzzle it. Yeah, all the and and the, and uh, we know that COVID can kind affect. Of- the lining of blood vessels, and you know, and, and you know, the impact on the microcirculation, and the role of that female hormones can play on that. It's just, it, it's a, it's a never-ending cycle of hypotheses. The problem is, at some point, you've got to bite the bullet and say, "Well, shall we try something?" um You know, and, and I think so long as we're very, so we take decisions together with patients about the pros and the cons. You know, if you try HRT for three cycles or or longer, it, it's not like you can't stop it if it makes no difference. And I think that's where we're at. Whilst we wait for much better quality evidence that sometimes we will try the H1 and the H2 blockers for 12 weeks, makes no difference. We just stop it. Um, so long as the treatments that we're trying are not dangerous.
1: Which is the thing with repurposing things, uh, using them off-license. Yeah. It means they're essentially safe.
2: Well, many of them are safe. Yeah.
0: Is there a waiting
2: list to get into your
0: long COVID clinic?
2: So we're in a bit bit of a pickle at the moment. We've um, I think we've got 500 people waiting for new appointments and 400 waiting for their follow up appointments. Um, so that would, uh, given we have about 100 appointments a week, and obviously, unfortunately, all our appointments are filled up until November. So we're not where we want to be. And we're recruiting busily to try and expand our workforce and train people up, um, so that we can still deliver a consistent approach. Yeah,
1: because you, as you said previously, your people actually have experience of dealing with long, long COVID, whereas the, that sort of front line of GPs and things possibly don't, and that's what's going to set yeah. the, the clinics apart.
2: Yes,
0: you know, and exactly. if we're looking, if we're looking at the Delta variant adding to the numbers, that five hundred will very quickly.
2: I know, and I, that's. I mean, we've been sort of devastated by the, the the policy at the moment of unlocking, but there is some signs of hope in some data that the vaccine is protective against long COVID. Um, so we're very pro vaccine. Um, always,
0: always pro vaccine. Everybody, yeah. go get your genes.
2: Yeah, there's not much that we can do about this. In that, I think coronavirus is here probably for the rest of our lives, isn't it? And adjusting. To this um, and its consequences is 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 the ne- another challenge for the NHS. That at the moment it's not it's not easy in services.
0: But I have to say, the NHS being one of the few, if you compare it to the US, for example, the NHS has been able to gather data across the country. Yeah, and it, that's a real benefit, you know, to everybody suffering from. From these yes. diseases and, and to you know, try and have one
1: things. cohesive approach.
0: Exactly. Like you're leading the way. So you must be very proud.
2: And that it's freely available, you know, because obviously what we worry about is healthcare inequality in this space. We uh inevitably the the first tranche of patients we saw were the quite enabled individuals, um, professionals, um, able to advocate for themselves, um, good grasp of English. Yeah. So we, we have to uh, understand if there are vulnerable groups who aren't accessing care at the moment. So that's a, a big focus. And that's really difficult to, to crack because it goes beyond the NHS remit.
1: Yeah, and it possibly also is skewing the results as to why we're seeing certain demographics able to get uh, or getting help more or coming to the clinics more than other demographics of the country.
2: Yeah, it's really intriguing. Um, I don't think that's going to be the only story. I think there's something about the perimenopause period, which is adding to vulnerability to these symptoms. It it feels that way, because that pattern just hasn't shifted. We still see majority white women um, of, of, of sort of the late 40s age. So... I thought I thought that might be how it was at the beginning, and it would evolve. But it it hasn't really changed yet. So, uh, unless we're still doing an absolutely abysmal job at accessing other groups, but you know, the messages are are being disseminated very widely within systems now.
0: It's really interesting the way they approach long COVID and the standard tests that they do when people get through the door. But again, you know, one of the saddest parts of this interview for me was the fact that they now are only seeing people within their postcode and the queues to get in to see people are months and months yeah it is such a long wait to get in to see
1: anyone and and the other thing is that whilst they say that there is a roadmap to make other long covid clinics actually follow a similar similar operation to to uclh the reality is that a lot of people aren't able to access any kind of similar service within their postcode. It's not replicated across the board.
0: No, I think I think the NHS's got a long long way ahead in trying to catch up to deal with everybody that's got long COVID.
1: Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at TLCsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.